Thank you, Amber. I love the way that she helps prepare us for worship. Um, welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, the home of the greatest kids youth choir. Just some announcements. There's a crib shower downstairs for uh, newborn Timothy Meyer. Mom and baby are doing good. There's a sign-up sheet that went around. Gail stopped by yesterday on Saturday and saw all the little ones and just keep praying for them. Uh, newborn baby, uh, they need a lot of prayer. And they were going to come today, but they said, well, we'll wait one more week. But check out the crib shower downstairs. Ladies are starting a new Bible study. You can see that in the bulletin. Next week, we have a fellowship meal with Mexican food. I think that's Sue Ellen's favorite food. So, And you can read the rest. So, And I think Pastor has a, another announcement. Yes, I have one announcement. Yeah, we left that on when we turned out. I'll get it. Bear with us while we fix a couple of things. You going to get that? Yes. And read, too? You think I'm going to go that long? I just wanted to make a add to the announcements. Uh, one is thankful for... Addie and Bailey and Paul, uh, the Kenimers, oh, yeah, they're, they don't want to be embarrassed. You know. I really appreciate their work on our website. We've updated that. I've announced it. Uh, you can go look at it at grbchurch.org, and uh, they've done a great job. And if you have any contributions to it, like to fix w whatever we have uh, for now, just uh, coordinate it with me. We'll work on that later. But... I'm sure there will be a couple of typos here and there that you might see. Uh, we'll want to correct them. Also, if you have any content that uh, you think we ought to have on our public website, uh, let me know. I'll help coordinate with them, and, and we'll put some of that up. It is a work in progress, but they've done a, a total uh, remodeling, if you will, of it, and it did a great job, and we do have some things to add so be patient about it, but what they've done is very good. Well, one other thing that they included in there that we haven't done before, uh, but it kind of goes with the modern world, which um, I'm way behind the modern world, but uh, is online giving. And the reason I mention that because uh, I think my children who are adult children don't have checks. Um, they don't know how to refill them out. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's Apparently that, that is the case. Anyway, uh, no, the, um, uh, that's one of the ways to, to give, and, and partly we're, we're moving forward to the modern era. Right now we use a box in the back to, to give, and we've really never talked about giving per se unless it happens to be in the text of Scripture we're going through. I also want to just stop and tell you that I appreciate your support for the ministry for missions when we call for support there or special things. Uh, we have really been blessed in not having to press on that at all. But God's people have been very giving and overflowing in that regard. Uh, in any case, we just want to make it a little bit uh, more convenient 
uh, for you in, in that regard to use a modern way to uh, participate in that. So now that's available and it's on the front uh, uh, page. It, it isn't that we're trying to uh, collect extra money and that kind of thing, but just give you a more convenient way to uh, engage in giving. And so I want to thank again the Kenimers for uh, putting that together and making that available uh, to us. Yeah, are you sure you got all that done? I, I'm just trying to kill time now. Um, so thank you much for that. And please note that uh, and, and we'll, it, we'll work on some more things with the website in days to come. Andy's going to come and read for us now the, as we begin our worship from the reading from the life of Christ. And it's Matthew chapter 18. And I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 18. He'll be reading out of the ESV, I think, not the NIV. All right. ESV. All right. And if you don't have your copy, and a lot of you use tablets and phones now, again, the modern world, even Ken, look at him, and there's some. He's advanced beyond us. Uh, you can find a Pew Bible, though, that we have that copy. What I want you to do is take time as he reads through it and think about what Christ has said. That's one of the reasons we do these readings from time to time. And then I'm going to give you, when he's done, I'm going to give you a few moments to reflect on what we have just read. And privately, if you want to pray or meditate, just meditation we mean by thinking, thinking on the word, we'll give you a few moments to do that so you can reflect on that. And then I'll uh, close it, uh, that section out with a pastoral prayer. So Andy, if you will, come read for us Matthew chapter 18, 1 through 20. This is God's word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he, that is Jesus, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world! for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Take a moment where you're at privately to think on these things. Oh, Father, by your grace, mediated through the power of the Spirit, may we become like little children. We may, may we humble ourselves before you. May we have total trust in you and you alone. What a privilege it is to be called sons and daughters of God. I pray that won't pass on our thoughts lightly. What a great privilege it is to be called from darkness into light. To be a part of your kingdom. I'm thankful that you are with us and that you are concerned and protect us. And you will bring about certain judgment to those who are in opposition to you and to your people. In the meantime, Father, I pray that you will give us great comfort and courage to stand for that which is true and that which is right. I pray in our own life we would examine our own hearts and cut away those things that dishonor you. I pray, Father, that you will create in us a 
a pure and holy heart that has great desires and affections for you. It's not mediated through external circumstances or rituals that we engage in, but through the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit. Change us from the inside out. I pray that your name would be exalted in this place as we recognize that even our conflicts within ourselves and with one another can be easily resolved as we look to Christ who will unify us and unite us together. I pray, Father, that as we gather together here in your name and make good judgments about ourselves and others and and what's going on in this day, that your name would be exalted. I pray, Father, that you would accompany the communication of your word in, in the various ways in which it's presented to bring life. I pray that you will save many sons and daughters. I pray that you would truly sanctify them and keep them. I pray that the light of the glory of your grace would would abundantly shine here in this place, not just in this day, but in days to come. Give us the joy, the joy that we find by abiding in Christ truly. And may we have the, the peace that passes all understanding. May our hearts respond in great thanksgiving for who you are, for what you're doing, and what you have promised. I pray, Father, that more than anything, we would have great patience to wait for you and to trust you in what you have promised to provide and enjoy the good gifts that you have given and will give. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and let's worship in song this morning, turning to number 595, 595, for all the saints. Psalm 44, 1 says, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days. 595.
506. 506, in Christ alone, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. Lamentations 3. scripture reading for today uh, comes from beginning of Acts 14 on 923 in the Pew Bibles. As we know in Acts we have the only flawless church history book ever written with this uh, meticulous historical scholarship based on first-hand accounts and inspired by the Holy Spirit. In this chapter we have is runs the gamut. We have Jews that have lived with the law of Moses from birth, and we have completely clueless pagans. We have apostolic miracles and revival, and we have persecution with murderous intent. Now, 
we only have one text in one meeting, but there are various applications that the text makes uh, to us when we read scripture. For example, 20 years ago, the book of Hebrews mostly spoke to me with perseverance and suffering. And now the book of Hebrews mostly speaks to me with looking at some preachers that I revered so much that have fallen into uh, disgrace and uh, public scandal and don't, don't go down that road. So with uh, full confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, let us read God's Word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands uh, to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witnesses. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God.
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, Heavenly Father, there are so many world history books uh, out there, uh, but perhaps one day in glory we will look more and more at the history of how your Son has loved the church and guide us into our uh, humble part of that history uh, here in this fellowship. And we pray that you would uh, wash us uh, by your word, uh, cleanse us uh, by your blood, uh, call out uh, the lost uh, out of darkness and uh, into light. Uh, Help us to be conformed to the image of your Son and help us to love one another and care for each other uh, as we would should even care for you and your son. And I pray that we would uh, cheerfully give as we are able. Uh, This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. stand once more and take our hymn books and turn to number 621 satisfied he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things psalm 107 621 
472, free from the law, O happy condition. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3, 14, 472. Thank you, Blake, Amber, and Church, for that singing. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 8. That hymn goes along with what we're talking about, actually, in explaining the new covenant compared to the old, or as is described in that hymn, the law. preacher of Hebrews is talking to a group of mostly Jews who are thinking they want to engage back into the ritual of Judaism. He warns them that's a dangerous thing to do because you may very well abandon Christ in so doing. He's explaining the new covenant here in chapter 8 in comparison to the old. I want you to note here we're looking at the, the better sense of this new covenant because it's based on better promises, and I've been articulating them the last few weeks, and we'll do so in a few weeks to come as well. 
But I want you to note in verse 10 of chapter 8, and we'll look at that phrase, the better promise of the new covenant that we'll focus on today is this phrase here, I will be their God and they will be my people. In this phrase, it is expressed the reality of the better covenant, the new covenant, in that you have a transcendent and holy God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all things, is going to be truly our God. And beyond that, we will be his people. Two theological word, words to hang this idea on. One is the transcendence of God, and two, his imminence. And both are expressed here in that simple phrase. That I'll actually be their God indicates there's got to be a change of heart where God is our God. If you really think about it, many have an idea about God, but God really isn't their God. If I had to describe what most people's God is, it is themselves. And that is the, really the, the foundation of sin and rebellion against God. It's what Satan said, at the, the father of all lies said, I will be God. And tempted Adam and Eve with the same notion. You're going to be like God. In reality, you're worshiping an idol. And particularly thinking about your own autonomous existence, which is a myth. We, we, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. And we wouldn't continue to be here if it wasn't for God. God is not only the creator, but he's the sustainer. And so, so what is it that's going to change the disposition of mind where you recognize that, yes, the one only and true God is truly God and your God? This is going to take a supernatural work, a manifestation of his grace and mercy in bringing about a newness of life. And then beyond that, in that circumstance, it, it is one thing to be truly made alive in Christ, but then this transcendent, holy, and perfect God would actually want to be with us. That he would want a people for his name. We talked last week about the aspect of God's grace in this expression of the new covenant. And, and remember that this new covenant, as it's expressed here, is new in relationship to the old or the mosaic. That's, that's really what's in focus here. The, this, this new covenant was promised to be fulfilled in, in Christ. The prophets had talked about it, 
But God has always saved this way, that is, by his grace, by his mercy, through faith. And we'll read more about that in chapter 11 when it refers to people under the old covenant who were also saved by, by faith, by God's grace. Redemption, as we looked at last week, it, it's not mixed with works at all. It isn't of our own doing. Ephesians 2, 8. By grace you're saved, it's through faith. It isn't of your own doing. It, it is a gift of God, what? All of it, from the beginning to, to the end. It isn't a result of works, that is, your work. In that way, you have nothing to glory in and of yourself. You have nothing to boast, as the ESV translates it. The boasting is the idea of taking a pride, if you will, in your accomplishment, in your good choices in life. Most of my choices aren't so good. I don't know about you. I've made some good ones, I guess, relatively speaking. But this critical one, no, I wouldn't want to be dependent on mine. The dependence is on God. And our response then is to praise him. And all boasting and all glory goes to God, who accomplishes redemption not through the will of man, but through his will. It, it's, it's incredible just to even think about that. And, and that's really what this new covenant is about. It, God has always redeemed people this way. That is the only way people can be redeemed. The, this new covenant really is a declaration, if you will, of his, or a revelation of his decree from the very beginning. That God would choose a people for himself, that he would save his people from their sin, and that he would dwell with him. Ephesians 1, we alluded to last week, that God works all things, Ephesians 1, 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's how anyone was redeemed, whether it was Adam and Eve, who God made uh, a sacrifice as a symbol of what is to, to come and redeem them and all the way up to you and me. It is, salvation is ultimately according to God's will and therefore we have nothing to boast. We have nothing to glory in other than to praise him because he does it for his glory. As Ephesians 1.12 says, that we who first were to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The means by which this comes about is through the hearing of his word. And he'll say, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you responded in belief. How does that come about? You're given ears to hear. You're given eyes to see. You're given breath to live. This is sealed then with the Holy Spirit who is the promise of our guarantee until we actually inherit it to the praise of the glory of his grace. Oh, so great a salvation. 
the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer to bring about newness of life, to bring about a recreation, if you will, born again, as Scripture talks about it, a regenerate person. And then that person, then not just to be passed from death unto life, but to really be a new creation in Christ that has a new disposition that's even manifested in this life where there is a desire for those virtues, and we might call them works, as a fruit, as a result of what God in his grace has done. And they'll take my word for it, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what? Unto good works. You see, there's a totally different dynamic working there. We're not engaging in these good works then to somehow bring about merit in our own life. It, it is simply a, a result of God's work in the believer that these would be manifested. And then we're called then as a created son and daughter in Christ then to manifest those things that look like Christ. Describe it as fruit, and that's a great analogy. And the call then is to be more fruitful because Christ has made you alive. Because you're attached to him. Or as he describes it in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. You want to be fruitful in your life? You want to be more like Christ? You want to express that? Abide in him. You don't get your life through your own initiative and ability, but rather through God's Grace granted to us, resting in him. And in so doing, you have a different desire to walk in newness of life. How does that come about? Well, he explains it in Hebrews chapter 8 in explaining this concept of the, the new covenant. Again, I would say this is how God has always redeemed his people. It's his work. But what you're getting here in the New Covenant is an explanation or a revelation of it. Where he says, notice verse 10, I, I'll put my laws in, in their heart. I will be their God. I will teach them. I will be merciful to them, and I won't count their sin against them. All of this is God's work, which is revealed. It is all of his grace. It is all to his glory. John would put it this way. From his fullness, John 1.16, we have all received... When you think of God's fullness, what you think of is something that is inexhaustible. It's God, remember? From his fullness. It isn't though God gives a little bit and then has less of it. That's the point. 
That's the imagery. Of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. He's not going to run out of grace. That's, that's the imagery. It's, it's grace upon grace, and it isn't grace just to, to get saved, to get earmarked to heaven, if you will. It is grace upon grace upon grace. It, it is that food by which you will live day by day. It is by his grace that you're saved. It is, it is by his grace that you will continue to grow in what? Grace and knowledge of him. It is by his grace that you will persevere to the end and stand before him in glory. And so whatever you think about grace, it's smaller than what it actually is. By contrast, he'll say in, for, in John 1, 17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The, the, the law was never meant to be a means by which grace would come. Nothing wrong with the law. It isn't bad. The problem is, is you and me. The law was not redemptive. The law simply points out whether you are a lawbreaker or not. And everyone matched up against the law is going to be proven to be guilty. And the judgment of guilty is eternal death. That's the wages. Even just one, and we've all broken many more. We, we have a tendency to minimize, to re classify to describe it in different ways but in the end we'd have to admit we have all fallen short of the god's glorious law but there's one man who didn't there is one man and when he was measured by the law it demonstrate he fulfilled all righteousness because he is righteous that is jesus christ so you understand what this preacher is saying about the, the law and the merit and, and our works, you, you can't use that to somehow get a better relationship with God in, in, in the sense of purifying your sin and your unrighteousness. It only magnifies it. There's only one that can, and it's Christ. So it, it demonstrates then the very righteousness of Christ it shows our unrighteousness, and in that sense, it's not redemptive, but it does function as a tutor, if you will. We talked about that. How? Because it points us of our need for someone who is actually righteous, and that is Jesus Christ. And for them, in the Old Testament, under the old economy, under the old covenant, it brought about great frustration, so they had to turn to God and rest in him for their salvation. And God had promised that that would come. Now, Christ has come. All has been fulfilled. And in connection with the saints of old, we just simply look back to that finished work of Christ that they look forward to as a promise to.
to be unfolded. And now we get the explanation of the fulfillment of it in this new covenant, which is much better. And we'll look at that, and I'll just put it in context, although I'm only going to talk about this phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people, in verse 10. But I'll put it in in its context here in Hebrews chapter 8, and I'll begin again at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. That's where he's driving at. And then he goes on to talk about the fault. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. This is a prophetic promise in the Old Testament as we looked at. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they didn't continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. See, that's the problem. They didn't continue. So what's the promise? I, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they'll not teach one another his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I'll be merciful towards their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray our focus indeed would be on the better promises. Better because you will accomplish all that you purchased all that you've purposed. I pray, Father, that the significance of this truth would sink deep into our hearts and souls. May we be comforted by this great truth. May you even use it to call many sons and daughters to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, receiving the benefits of the new covenant in his blood. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mention here this phrase that I want to go through, I will be their God and they will be my people. Transcendence and imminence both are there. This transcendent God then promises to engage with us, if you will, to condescend and be with us and for us. It is clearly expressed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ when he would come and become one of us and certainly be with us. But when we say this idea here that I will be their God, remember who God is and oftentimes we can miss that aspect of God. God, as the children sang last week, immortal, invisible, God only wise. 
in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, the great name we praise. Here is a hymn pointing out just some of those attributes of God that are distinctive in that he, he is, is, is immortal. He, he is the source and the fountain of wisdom. In a sense, he uh, is described in Scripture a lot as light. It's the only way to explain something that brilliant. We would use the term glorious as well. It's almost, and it would be certainly greater in our state, to, to try to stare at the sun, at that magnificence and the brilliance of that, and God transcends all of that. He is described as most glorious and most blessed. This ancient of days meant that there were, there were all days, as we might think about days, are, existed post-God, if you will. God is there from eternity, from anything that might begin and anything that might end, there is God. He, he is the Almighty One, the one with all power and the one that will always win. So he has a great name. And to understand God, then we praise him for who he is. There is nothing like God, there is no one like God in that sense, in the fullness of who he actually is. Listen to some of these scriptures that talk about this transcendent nature of God, which we really need to have in our minds when we think about him. The, the psalmist put it this way in Psalm 8. O Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Have you ever looked out and seen how beautiful the heavens are, even on a clear, beautiful day with clouds floating around? Or, or maybe you see towards the evening, as we call it sunset, when it's uh, colored like a, a better than any watercolor that you might see. God is above that. When you see the beauty of the stars on a clear night and you can't even imagine how many there really are and can't even count them. However majestic all of the height is, God is greater. 57.5 is Psalms. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and let your glory be over all the earth. And think about what God has created in this earth. And they constantly think about trying to find life somewhere else and maybe even transport to go create and live somewhere else. Bunch of fools. There's nothing like this what, because God has created this in a unique way. Why? It displays his glory. Those remote objects do too in the sense of the immensity of what it is and why it's there, which we can't even figure out half of why it's there and what is going on. It, it is beyond our ability to even get anywhere close to many of the objects out in the heavens. And God is beyond that. And that's the imagery given here. God is clearly exalted. He is a sovereign God. 
who is like our God, who is seated on high, Psalm 113.5. It is, it again, is the imagery of, a, of the sovereignty of God in authority over all. 103.19 of Psalm. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. It may not appear that his kingdom is ruling over all particularly in a political season that we're about to enter. But, beloved, know this. God is still in authority. He rules over all. He is a transcendent God. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. There is only one, only one living God. He says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring from the beginning and the ancient of times. You've heard that in in our hymn, that's where it comes from. Not things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's who God is. Do you know him? This is God. Do you see the idea of his transcendence over all? There's none like him. He's the ancient of days, if you will. All of his counsel will stand. He will accomplish all of his purposes. This is God. We'll take a little journey to Isaiah 45, if you wish. This transcendent God overall, who declares that he will then accomplish all of his purposes, he governs all things, oversees all things, even the creation for the ends for which he purposes. We, we call that in, in theology the providence of God. And here can be a tough spot, and I had you turn there because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole section in Isaiah, but I'll just point out a verse that people have trouble with, and then I'll give you the context of it, and then encourage you through your Bible reading, perhaps you could read the entire book of Isaiah, and while you're at it, go ahead and read the Old Testament as well. But I'll give you a little hook to hang some of this truth on. 45, seven. Remember, God says he's in charge. He does everything. He's going to accomplish all. And in 45.7 in Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. Remember in the beginning of Genesis? was referring to. You see any light out there? Well, that's God's creation. He says, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. Now, this is where people struggle because, you know, where does God create evil? God does not create moral evil. The, The point that's being expressed here, and I think Tom Constable does good in his brief comment on this section, the main point is that God is ultimately responsible for everything in nature and history. Now, 
That's a huge statement when you think about it. God is ultimately responsible for everything in nature and in history. He is the God who created all. Everything that is in the universe exists because of the very creative will of God. God was not, Constable goes on, claiming that he creates moral evil, but both well-being, shalom in Hebrew here, and calamity, raw, in that he allows these wicked things to happen to people for his own reasons and for his own purposes. Remember, his purpose will stand. His counsel will go on. And he, he doesn't cause people to make moral, evil decisions. You see that in James chapter 1 and verse 13. It tells us where that comes from. It comes from our own wicked heart. God is the one who creates all. Contrasted to pagans from that day who had an idea that those concepts of light and darkness were in and in themselves God. No, God created all of them. He is the God of all. In context, what is he saying here? And why was this even brought up? For that, you would have to drop back a little bit. I won't go too far. But in the previous chapter, it, it kind of opens up and begins. So if you're in Isaiah, look at this. What he's saying is that he is in control of all things and even wicked rulers. Hmm. I guess there's hope for America after all. But I digress. Do you know God? He is the transcendent God. Here, in their circumstance, look, he's talking about a pagan king in verse 28 of chapter 44, a guy by the name of Cyrus. What's going to happen is God will use him, a wicked pagan man, he will use him to release his people from their captivity. And so how does he speak of Cyrus, an unregenerate person? He says, he is my shepherd, verse 28, and he shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. God will rise up even those that aren't aligned with him to accomplish his purposes, again, demonstrating the governing of God in all things, a transcendent God, which if you're in the immediate and circ uh, of the situation, it may not look like that. You, you, but you've got to understand who God is and above. And, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, it describes that in great detail. Everything seems to be vain. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. It, it's something, and yet it's nothing. And yet you see great futility. Where? Under the sun. From our perspective, that's the way much of that looks. And how does the preacher in Ecclesiastes find the resolve? Look upwards. Recognize that even in the darkest days, 
God is ultimately in control and moving all things to the counsel of his will. You can, if you're still in Isaiah there, now see how 45 opens. God says, this, is, this pagan king is going to be my shepherd. He's going to accomplish what I purpose. He says to his anointed, to, to Cyrus, anointed? What do you mean? God put him in place, in position. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of irons. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Do you know him? That's the transcendent God. And by the way, th this is why we respect those that are in authority. It, it isn't suggesting that we swallow everything they attempt to force down your throat. But on the other hand, we do respect authority and teach our children to respect authority. Why would you teach your children to obey the parents? Why would you teach your children to obey the teachers or those that are in authority over them? Because that is just a stepping stone to point to who truly is in charge, and that is God. We teach them to honor then God. And Paul would tell the church in Rome, and that's probably close to being as about as wicked as some of our governing authorities are. Um, he says, uh, be subject to them in Romans 13, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Really? Nero, <laughs> who would soon chop off Paul's head? Understand what he's saying. God is sovereign, and he is in control, and he has a purpose for all of it. You may not know what it is. For sure. If you're in, still in Isaiah, but hadn't lost you yet, just jump down to verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth at, that open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, has created it. What's his point here? His point is, if God is totally in control of all things, even evil men that don't know him, that are accomplishing the purposes for which he has ordained to bring about, salvation is really not that hard for God. <laughs> He controls the rain and the clouds. He can bring it about. 
He can bring them both to sprout, as it said here, because it is the Lord who created it. They have practical ramifications about this concept of God being a transcendent God above all things. Constable goes on to comment another statement I think is helpful. Since God created the earth, he can pour out blessings on it, fertility and salvation. Even though God is ultimately responsible for everything that happens, his creation can rejoice because he will only do what is right. And a warning is given for those that would reject that in verse 9, woe to those who strive against God. Likens it to a pot. A pot doesn't say to those that form it, hey, why are you making me like that? Again, demonstrating the relationship between man and God, a sovereign God. Declaration would be given in verse 21. I'll just skip down there. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this to you long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. God is the Savior. There is none besides me. There's none that could do it. There's none that could come close to who God is. He is the transcendent holy God above all things. And you know what the the call is? And here you have the gospel right in the midst of it then, even though they, the, the, it all, you know, it, it isn't fully uh, revealed in Christ at this time. Verse 22, do you see this? Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's the call. Recognizing perhaps your own hopelessness, recognizing God is in control of everything. You're not in control. No wonder Paul could say, don't be anxious for anything, but to do what? By prayer and supplication, make your request be known to God. Call out to him. He's the one that is in control. He says, I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth and has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now you know where Paul got it from. In the full revelation of this, how will that come about? It'll come about through Christ as we confess him as Lord and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And you'll either do it in, in, in a redeemed state of righteousness in praise him for his grace or in receiving wrath for your rebellion and rejection against him. There, there is no other God. There is no other way. God is cre- the creator of all. He's the transcendent God above all And you know what the blessing of the new covenant is? This work of grace and mercy in the heart of the believer is you recognize that. Most people don't recognize that. They they think of God in different ways, in different ideas, and ultimately you know who God is? The idol of their own heart. Sad to say. 
but in the promise of the new covenant is in is a um, a word that says you're you're going to know God, the real God, the only God, this only wise God. You will know Him, and you and you know how you do. It is because of His grace granted to you. And the second aspect of that phrase that we're working on, they will be, I will be their God. They recognize him for who he is. And, and then he says, I, I will be, the, they will be my people. And if you, if, you, if, you, if you really understand a transcendent, exalted God, th- this then takes it to a whole new level as to why would he even bother having the people? We, we know he does this. He brings this about ultimately for the praise of the glory of his grace. It is a way for him to manifest those aspects of his glory that wouldn't otherwise be seen. It isn't that you would then somehow be a special choice for God. It is that God in his grace and his mercy would grant you a closeness, a uniqueness to redeem you so that you and those that around you would see that aspects of God that he is a gracious God and his grace is full and never empty it is mediated in a constant stream he's a merciful God he doesn't take those things that you do and keep bringing them up He chooses to set those aside because they've been atoned for in Christ. He chose to redeem a people for his name for the praise of the glory of his grace. And we could go on and think about all of those aspects of God that are made known in the redemption of his people. But this is a great truth that in a unique way, this transcendent God a God above all, would then be with his people. We call that the eminence of God. If you remember Christmas time, it'll be here before we know it. But Matthew is a book we often read during that period of time. And you remember how Matthew begins his gospel talking about Christ? The promise of the incarnation, Matthew 1, 21, I'll read it for you. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Jesus means deliverer or savior, for he will save his people from their sins. That, that's what I'm getting at. They will be my people. How will they be my people? Because a virgin will have a son. You will call his name deliverer and he will deliver or save his people from their sin. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. This is in Isaiah 7:14, And bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. This is the promise of the new covenant. It, it, it isn't this, we, we, we would just get our, our sins atoned for, that's, that's good. It isn't just that we would escape eternal wrath, that's great. But there's one other aspect in that, in that God would not just be for us, but God would actually be with us. How long? How long would God be with us? Was this just a temporary thing where Jesus walked the earth, lived among his people, gathered a group of disciples who followed him, died, and then went off to heaven to come back again one day? No. He would be with them as the book of Matthew closes with this. And I think that parallel is there from the bookends of that great gospel. You've heard it. It's called the Great Commission. And how does it end? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the promise of the new covenant, that God would be with his people, not just in time, but in eternity. And from the very beginning to the very end, that God would be with his people. I've talked about this before. Specifically, you can find it in John chapter 14, where Jesus is ascending to heaven. And before he goes, he, he's cleared his disciples. And this is one of the clearest explanations of how we understand the triune nature of God. That is one God, one being, three persons. He says, the Father and I then are going to send another of the same essence or another of the same being. He will be with you. He is called a helper. He is called an advocate. All the things that Christ did with his disciples as he was their helper, he was their advocate. He was with them at all times. He would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in the life of the believer so that he would be with you always, even to the end of the age. And here, with the time that remains, I'll just look at one more passage that describes this, and I'll see what I can get through here. But it's Romans chapter 8, and I invite you to turn there now. Romans chapter 8. This is how God is with us. This is how we are his people. And he's with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 and verse 11. Paul will describe that and says, If the Spirit, that's a capital L, a capital S, should I say, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus says he's going to be with you. He, he will send the Holy Spirit 
and for those that are truly redeemed, the Holy Spirit then will dwell. And we're called then in verse 13 to not live then according to the flesh, how we used to live, because if you continue down that road, that leads to death and destruction. You're going to die. But how will you then live for Christ? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is his grace on display. This is a continuing grace after grace bringing us along in obedience to the faith. In verse 14 is what he talks about. Those who are led by the Spirit then are the sons of God. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into to fear. This is the bondage and the idea of being under the penalty of the law. But you receive the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Ava, Father. And so here is a unique, dynamic relationship with the, this very transcendent and holy God, this only God that you can call out at any time in the weakest of your moments and say, help me, Dad. I'm a good enough father. I'm not a great father. But I'm good enough. If one of my kids called out to me for help, I'd drop everything and help them. And I'm not that great. You understand, this is the transcendent God who calls you and says, you, you can call out to him, Ava, Father, in, in your darkest and most difficult time, the, the one who actually is in control. I'm not in control of everything, despite what my wife says. No, she's in control. God is in control of everything. And that's who you get to cry out to. That's the imagery of this adoption, to being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that even brings out times in which that, it is, and this is a, an aspect of assurance of salvation for those that are in Christ. The Spirit then bears witnesses with our spirit. Well, what he's talking about, our immaterial being, the Holy Spirit of God, speaks to our mind and our consciousness and confirms that indeed we're children of God. And those that are, what do you, who, who, who are you? What standing do you have? You just get to wear the badge that says Christian? No. You get to wear the badge that says Beloved. As the father loves the son, that's the kind of love that he's talking about. That imagery there. Children of God, he says, fellow heirs then with Christ. Not secondary, united with him. Suffering, yes, in this life that we might be glorified with him. And see how it changes, and I'll try to be quick here. Don't laugh at me, but... Go, this is so wonderful, and one day I'll preach through Romans if I live long enough. But notice here, verse 18, then, how that changes in a practical way what's going on, the sufferings of this present life, whatever they might be. 
Nothing compares to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. You know, again, recognizing this transcendent God who then uh, gathers the people for his name and really his people. He'll go on to talk about how creation itself, the cursed earth, if you will, he calls it groaning. It's as if they're, they're, they're waiting for the curse to be lifted. How is this curse going to be lifted as the sons uh, of God then are their bodies are redeemed. That glory then is manifested. It is this Holy Spirit in verse 26 then that will help us then in our weakness because we don't know all the time how to pray. You got a little kid that needs something, they don't always know how to ask. But the wise parents do. Well, here you have someone that is much more wise than a parent. It's this transcendent God. And he's bringing about those things in life. Verse 28, a familiar passage for us. He works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. This transcendent God can and will accomplish that, bringing you to Christ, conforming you to the Son, sustaining you in the sufferings of this present time, and bringing you ultimately to, to glory. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the goodness of who you are, the majesty of your transcendent name and yet you have condescended yourself to be with us to display your glory in the redemption of, of your people I pray we would be comforted by that in great degree convicted by those things that would draw us astray and challenge others to, to look to the redemption that is in Christ, in Christ alone. I pray this in his name. Amen. We often pause here to give you a time to reflect and think on these things. Respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you today. Father, we do praise your holy name. Indeed, we recognize you as our God. And we thank you that you would grant us your grace.
to be sons and daughters to praise your holy name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to invite you to sing along. You're going to stand in 353 in your hymn book. This is an interesting uh, hymn that juxtaposes this idea of, I don't even know why this grace is here and, and how it's been made known. This is the mystery. But you know what? I do know. <laughs> and you get that juxtaposition in this hymn. I know whom I believed because the answer is Christ. Let's sing it out together. 353. dismissed. <clears throat> this charge I entrust you in accordance with the prophecies made about you, <clears throat> that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And this is the charge to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.